Welcome to Talking History with Farnham U3A History Group. Today, Michael Abair talks about how the West was lost or won, depending on your point of view. Part A. We're going to talk today about how the West was lost or won. The story goes back a long way. I know we're looking at that period 1865-ish to 1914, but I do need to go back rather further than that to get the perspective on it and to be able to cover the ground. The story of America is, is a huge subject. We can only just touch the very surface of it today. Um, let's first of all look at the Native Americans, so-called Indians. Now, frankly, nobody knows where they actually came from. It's generally been assumed that they crossed over from Asia when there was a land bridge uh, from Siberia into what's, what's now Alaska, and uh, then gradually filtered down and, uh, and, and occupied the whole of America. The land bridge disappeared about 10,000 years ago. They've been in North America, or in, in the Americas, uh, particularly North America, for at least 15,000 years. Probably massively longer than that, but at the very minimum we can prove 15,000 years. The only trouble with that theory about them crossing the land bridge is that it just can't be true. Um, and it can't be true for one very simple reason. Blood groups. The predominant blood group in Asia is B. And uh, we have more than enough medical people in here to know that. Um, while the blood groups of all Native Americans, or uh, practically all, are A and O. And all pure-blood Indians, Native Americans, um, south of the Canadian border, are O, blood group O. All the way from the Canadian border right down through Central and South America to Cape Horn. So, Nobody knows where they came from. It's a complete and utter mystery. There have been various theories about where they came from. Um, various enormously learned scholars have suggested that their ancestors were the Greeks, the Etruscans, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Indians, that's proper Indians from India, uh, the Basques, the Welsh. <laughs> you can see. You can see how, how educated these, these people are who are coming up with these ideas. Um, the Irish, the Mormons believe that the Indians, are, the so-called Indians, are descended from the ten lost tribes of Israel. For all I know, they might even come from Mars, I don't know. I mean, that's no more wild than some of these other ideas. But nobody knows. It is a mystery. I mean, there is just a theory that when that land bridge disappeared about 10,000 years ago, but that's where they actually lived, and when it started flooding, they, they, they hopped over to, to Alaska. We, we have no possible means of knowing. The, the Native Americans, they, they, they lived, they did, we think of them all um, living in teepees. See, most of us are a vaguely similar age group, and we were all brought up on cowboys and Indians, weren't we? 
the Lone Ranger and, and, and all these other things. And Native Americans weren't just such a simple uh, grouping that lived in teepees all the time. Some lived in democratic societies and others lived in rigid class systems. Some were ruled by gods that they carried around on litters. Others had quite advanced judicial systems. Some tribes lived in caves. Others did live in teepees. Some even lived in cabins, log cabins. There was even a few tribes that were run by women, and I should think they were probably better run than most of the others. Um, my wife would say that anyway. <laughs> there was a huge variation in their attitude to, to war. Some of the tribes did little buck fight wars, um, and others had virtually never heard of war. Yeah, there were all sorts of Native Americans. The trouble really came, of course, as we're going to be hearing, uh, when, let's call, us, call ourselves the white man, arrived. I was reading uh, a book by Sir Keith Thomas, who is a very eminent Oxford University historian, and some of you, some of you probably know him. He said, and I quote him precisely, it was believed that if people occupied territory, God intended them to cultivate it. That if they didn't cultivate it, they were not entitled to own it. So when the colonists encountered the Native Americans who practiced very little agriculture, they believed that the, that the Native Americans had no right to the land. And looked at that way, we can see where things were coming from. I don't for one split second agree with, uh, with the philosophy of the, of the colonists in those days, but that, is, that was the belief in those days. Going right back, we know that the Vikings found the north coast of North America in 1000 AD, when Leif Erikson got lost on his way from Norway to Greenland uh, via Iceland. Uh, he missed Greenland, but he found himself in Newfoundland. He presumably didn't like it very much because he didn't stay there very long. He did find that there were a lot of wild grapes and wheat growing there and decided to call it Vinland, as it was obviously going to be a source of wine. Somehow he got cold feet, I suppose, and disappeared. And might be in the winter, he probably got cold more than his feet. But I don't propose talking about the English and their colonies uh, today uh, along the eastern seaboard, uh, Roanoke, which was founded by Walter Raleigh, and so on, but we should remember that only a very narrow coastal strip was occupied by English settlers. Likewise, I don't propose talking about the Mayflower and the Founding Fathers, nor about the reasons why considerable numbers of English settlers went to America to avoid religious persecution here. The Spanish settlers started uh, when Columbus got to America. It's a long, very interesting story, but again, we're not going to go through that one today. Suffice to say, it was a relentless quest for gold that drove Spaniards from Mexico into most of what we call the southern states of America, as far west as the Grand Canyon and then eventually beyond it to the Gulf of California. The Spanish expansion ended rather suddenly in 1588. It was due to a very bad weather a few thousand miles away in the English Channel. Yeah, the Spanish Armada. Um, we now know that it was those dreadful storms in the Channel that really defeated the Armada, rather than the intrepid English sailors in their little ships. But no matter. The Spanish dominance of the seas ended there and then. No control of the seas meant no support for the colonies in what was by then known as New Spain. 
We know it as the states of Arizona, Texas, California, and New Mexico. They developed, they, the Spanish, developed a sort of outpost economy, and gradually over the next couple of hundred years, things deteriorated. The Spanish introduced two things, though, that would change everything. Anybody think what two things they, they introduced? The horse. The horse. Well, in, well I, I was thinking the church to a degree. I was thinking of the horses and cattle. Mm. Uh, they introduced cattle into, uh, in, into the Americas as well. The word cowboy is a direct translation of the Spanish word vaquero. Stampede comes from estampida, lasso from lazo, and so many other words that we know and just use daily connected with the Americas. You only need to look at the map of that part of America to see how many place names are Spanish, to realize how far the Spanish went in the south of what we, we know as the United States. As I say, or as I said, the Spanish lost control of the seas and in came the Dutch, the French, and the English. Probably the most successful at that time were the French, who had been fishing on the cod banks of Nova Scotia only 12 years after the, uh, Columbus had first found the Americas. Whilst the English were cautiously sailing up and down the east coast of Nova Scotia, all the way down to Florida, the French were exploring inland, especially along rivers, and they were trading furs with the Native Americans they met along the way. It was the French who really opened up much of the interior of America. The French traded bits of, bits of metal, axes, trinkets, and so on for the furs, especially beaver, while all the time they were looking for that fabled Northwest Passage to the Pacific Ocean. There's no doubt at all that the French were much better at getting on with, uh, with the Native Americans uh, of different tribes than any other nationality. Soon the French influence stretched from the St. Lawrence to the Rockies. I'm sure you can all picture this in, uh, on a map in your heads. Uh, from the St. Lawrence to the Rockies and from Hudson Bay to the Gulf of Mexico. So, most of North America. This brings us very neatly to an amazing Frenchman by the name of La Salle, Sieur uh, René Robert Cavalier de la, de la Salle. Let's just call him La Salle. <laughs> to call him an intrepid traveller is a bit of an understatement. As a 23-year-old, he went to Montreal, he's a Frenchman, he went to Montreal to earn his fortune in the fur trade. He was referred to as many things, quoting records from that time, audacious, diplomatic, overbearing, brilliant, courageous, a man of inexhaustible pride and inflexible purpose. But none of this really does this guy justice. He intended to make a trip, a big trip, a very big trip. So first he learnt 12 different Indian languages, and dialects so that he could make friends with the Native Americans he met on the way. He travelled back to France to raise the money he needed using the usual searching for the Northwest Passage, Mr. King uh, story, as well as the bit about stopping those dreaded English from expanding west of the Appalachians. And he, um, he then went back to Montreal and led a number of reconnaissance trips below Lake Erie and Ontario. He loaded his ship, the Griffin, with furs to keep his backers happy, his Canadian backers happy. Somewhere shortly afterwards it sank but, um, and was never, never found. 
but that's, that's beside the point. He knew nothing of the, of the sinking of it. He went on round the west shore of Lake Michigan, built a fort or two, portaged over to the Illinois River, built another fort, and prepared for a long trip down the Mississippi in canoes. Before leaving, he realised he needed more supplies and funds. So he retraced his steps back on foot and by canoe to his start point, 65 days and something rather over a thousand miles away. So back he went to the start point. Next winter, he went back the same route, over a thousand miles again, only to find that his fort was abandoned and his men had deserted, or died, or disappeared anyway. He went back to Canada yet again to get more supplies and more money and more men, 23 Frenchmen this time, and 31 Native American Indians this time. Off they went back to the abandoned fort, yet another thousand miles plus. I don't suppose very many of you are counting, but that makes something well over 5,000 miles, by canoe and foot and on foot. By now it was December 1681, and the weather was, even for Canada, was appalling. La Salle made sledges for the canoes, and the men pulled them along the frozen rivers. Apparently they wore out a pair of moccasins every day. Gradually the weather improved and they set off down the Mississippi another thousand miles or so, but this time paddling gently downstream. Uh, by early April they reached the Gulf of Mexico where La Salle set up a cross at what later became New Orleans and claimed the, claimed the entire region, the entire Mississippi watershed for France, naming it Louisiana after the great King Louis. <coughs> Louis XIV, Louis XIV, and back he went, the same way to Canada. Now, so you counting, that makes something well over 8,000 miles. Unfortunately, by this time, there was a new governor in Canada, a new French governor in Canada, and he absolutely detested La Salle and belittled his expedition. So, out of money and out of favour, what did he do? Yes, he sailed back to France to appeal personally to the king for money to build a city a southern capital, on the spot where he raised his banner for France. The governor had already poisoned the mind of the king, but eventually, in order to annoy the Spanish, and to a degree the English, the king reluctantly agreed to fund another expedition and gave La Salle colonists to build his dream. I think colonists were probably people that he didn't exactly want in his own country. Unfortunately, his return to Canada was ill-fated. He got lost rather badly in the Atlantic, ending up, as, it, as we now know it, in Texas. So you know, it wasn't just sort of a mile or two out of their way. Um, it was you know, quite serious get lost. Um, they marched in any and every direction, but none of the Native Americans they met had ever heard of the Mississippi River. Well, they would they'd call it something else. They lived off bison and corn and barely survived. By spring 1687, only 40 of his 400 were still with him, the rest having died or deserted. He took 20 of his strongest men on one last search, and very close to the Navasota River, still 350 miles away from the Mississippi, by the way, his men killed him and deserted. They just couldn't cope with any more. And of course, in time, New Orleans was built. From this point, though, the French did not colonize as the English did, they just set up trading posts, or if they found useful minerals, a small town perhaps. The only exception was New Orleans, which was the main trading centre for the southern states. 
which turned into the capital city of French Louisiana, which incorporated the modern states. Just, just forgive me, get this into your heads. French Louisiana incorporated what we now know of as the states of Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, hello, Missouri, both the Dakotas, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, Minnesota, Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana. Over a third of what we now know as the modern United States. New Orleans was the place to sell furs and all manner of things from the American interior. If Napoleon hadn't sold the entire area of Louisiana for money he desperately needed for his fight against the, the British, um, then I think it's highly likely that New Orleans would have been the, the capital city of, uh, of the United States. And that could have had implications on, uh, on, on all sorts of things, slaveholding included. The French influence in America was huge, and like the Spanish in the Southwest, place names show it. Places like Baton Rouge are obvious, but Marietta, Ohio is named after Marie Antoinette, Narbonne became jaw Jawbone, and when Irish railroad workers found a lake in Arkansas called Lofois, cold water, they struggled a bit, then eventually called it Low Freight. Well, Lofois. Yes, the influence of the French was enormous. The British acquired everything east of the Mississippi after the French and Indian Wars, and in turn the Americans got it from the British in the Revolution. But in 1801, nobody really ruled the huge territories west of the Mississippi. The paper title belonged to Spain, uh, but for protective purposes, Spain ceded them to Napoleon and the French in a secret treaty. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, got wind of it, and knowing that the French were very preoccupied with fighting their old enemy, us, sent his minister to France, Robert Livingston, a sort of ambassador, I suppose, to make a deal with Napoleon. Jefferson told him to offer $10 million for New Orleans and Florida, or $7.5 million for New Orleans alone. If, if he refused, he was to secure navigation rights on the Mississippi River. The negotiations were getting nowhere at all until suddenly old Talleyrand limped in on his club foot and said, how much would you give us for the oil of Louisiana? Um, now, quite impressive. <laughs> you didn't know I spoke French, did you? <laughs> quite. <laughs> Livingston was staggered and blurted out the first figure that entered his head. Four million dollars. Eventually they agreed a ludicrously low figure of 80 million francs, or 16 million dollars, which works out at about four cents an acre. It increased the land area of the United States by 140% overnight. And this is how the United States, as we now know it, uh, started to be built. President Thomas Jefferson felt he needed to know a bit more about the land he'd just bought in, in 1803 and also the land west of it. So he asked his private secretary, Meriwether Lewis, to organize an expedition into the headwaters of the Missouri River. There were vague rumors about the West having tribes of Welsh-speaking Indians with blue eyes. They should keep cropping up there, don't they? They're good travellers, but there were rumours about mountains of salt and prehistoric creatures. Lewis took his old army colleague, William Clark, and together they travelled over 8,000 miles in a two-year period, exploring and looking for navigable passages to the Pacific Ocean. In other words, the Northwest Passage. Of course they failed to find it, but they did discover 300 new species of plant 
and 50 unknown Indian tribes. Then safely got back to Jefferson. They managed that mainly because of uh, the help from the wife of a French trapper, a uh, Native American wife of a French trapper, who guided them across the Rockies. Although they were amongst the most famous explorers of what we call the United States, they, as I said, didn't find that, that Northwest Passage. And really, they didn't discover anything of importance that the British, the French, or the Native Americans didn't know about it. When 35 years later, settlers started to flood westwards, it wasn't, only, it wasn't particularly along the trails used by Lewis and Clark, but the trails that had been used for years by the trappers. They're mainly remembered as the first Americans to go west and established the trend of nation building that was to follow them. Now, just want to mention here uh, for a split second um, a bit about the Alamo. Um, the siege of the Alamo between the 23rd of February and the 6th of March 1836 was a very important part of the Texas Revolution, effectively for control of what we now call Texas. The troops, led by General, uh, President General Antonio Lopez de Santa, the Santa Ana, attacked the Alamo mission statement, which housed a few hundred Texan troops, supplemented by a relatively small number of Americans. The Americans, uh, the Mexicans rather, killed all of them, including former Congressman Davy Crockett and Colonel James Bowie. The few who surrendered got killed anyway. This led to a major effort by the United States forces who soon took over the whole of Texas. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is published by the Mr. T Podcast Studio.